0: We now uh, come to our scripture reading today and we'll be reading together from Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading uh, once more from Philippians chapter 3. We touched down on this last week and we'll be continuing in this today. We just sang how... uh, Why in evil days should my courage fail, though wicked men against me may prevail, those who in their possessions place their trust, who with their own great riches are impressed. And we saw last week already how there were those in the Philippian church who placed their trust in the riches of the wealth of their own heritage, in the riches of the wealth of their own righteousness, and in the riches of the wealth of their own zeal. But as it says in the uh, the psalm here, none for his brother's life can pay the price, nor give to God a ransom to suffice. From death's decay, man's wealth can save him never, and it will not let him live on forever. So we saw this already last week with the heritage of the people of God, and now we will continue on in this with looking at the righteousness and zeal. We'll read together from Philippians chapter 3, and you can find that on page 1350. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be. Of the same mind, and again we'll be looking at this passage in light of those verses, verses thirteen and fourteen, brethren. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do: forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So far. Congregation loved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, do you know the difference between a relationship that is based on performance and a relationship that is based on love? When we look at our passage today, it's these two things that are kept in mind. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead We are leaving behind one of those and we are straining towards another. On the outside, these two can look very similar. People can seem devoted to each other. You can see people going the extra mile and you can even see a lot of effort going into it. Yet on the inside, it's very different. In a relationship based on performance, you'll always be wondering, have I measured up? Do I measure up? What more can I do to earn this person's love? In a relationship based on love, you'll always be wondering, what can I do to better serve, better sacrifice for, better respect and honor, better encourage and build up this person that I love? In a relationship based on performance, you'll find that eventually the joy is sucked dry. In a relationship built on love, as we read in verse 1 of our chapter, it leads to greater joy. It's this movement that I want to keep in mind as we look at our text today. When we talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to be clear Our own righteousness, our own performance is not what makes us righteous before God. It is not what earns his love. Our acceptance before him is based not on what we do. And yet that doesn't mean that we won't obey. Jesus said this in John 14 verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word which is to say he will be obedient to me. This is the natural outflow of love. Love does not go its own way. Rather, being secure in love, you now shift your attention to pleasing the one who is the object of your love. It's this that is the foundation of the Apostle Paul's pressing forward. That love presses him forward. I believe in Jesus Christ. Through this faith, I have come to the assurance that I belong to him and that I love him. I belong to him, verse 12. He has already laid hold of me. I love him, which is why in verse 12, I press on towards the goal of being more fully conformed to him. Verse 14, again, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on to lay hold of that for which he has already laid hold of me. His goals and my goals are aligned. The glory of God, my growing in holiness in him as I'm conformed to Christ, and that promise of an eternity with him to bring glory to him forever. This pressing on is not based on a relationship grounded in performance, but on a relationship that is based in love. And this brings us to the second part of what we'll be looking at today for how do you measure your worth? The first part being last week, the second part this week. And we'll see, first of all, the joy as you find your righteousness in Christ, and second, the joy as you find your zeal in Christ. So when the Apostle Paul talks about laying things aside, it's important to see the next thing that Paul lays aside. In the first place, he laid aside his heritage. He said, I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet he says that is of no account in whom I am before God. I don't find my identity wrapped up in that, but in Christ. Now, in the second place, he speaks about laying aside righteousness. When we focus on righteousness today, though, we need to recognize that uh, what exactly he is laying aside. Not righteousness itself, but the pursuit of his own righteousness as the standard of his righteousness before God. He lays bare the horror of turning what should be a relationship of love into a relationship that's based on performance. Now, there is no joy in life if you find your righteousness in your own performance. And the Apostle Paul points that out here in our letter in, the verses, in verses 5b and 6b. He lays aside having that confidence in his own righteousness before the throne of God, that confidence in verses 5b that he is concerning the law a Pharisee and concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. He sees that as barriers to the joy that is in the Lord that he speaks of in verse 1. Here he is talking about the pharisaical standards of righteousness. His peers considered him to be righteous, not having broken a single law from what they could see. And that's remarkable if you actually think about it. From an outsider's point of view, from their perspective, that one of them could walk up to, them, to him and say, from my point of view, you haven't broken a single outward law. But this was not the grounds on which he could be righteous. Let me take a moment to describe what this pharisaical righteousness looked like. One commentator says, as an example, they emphasize fastidious tithing, painstaking ritual purity, and strict observance of the Sabbath, just as a few examples. Now, these things don't sound particularly bad, you might think, especially tithing. If he's so careful about it, isn't that a good thing? But how does Jesus describe it? Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and you pass by the justice and love of God. In the Pharisaical tradition, they they emphasized so strongly the outward observance that they lost grace with the people that they confronted who did anything less than they They would tithe the spices in their spice cupboard, but their hearts for their brothers and sisters were missing, and they passed by the justice and love of God because of this. They were holding up what they did, counting on their attention to detail, their attention to the minute details of the law to get them right before God. But Jesus points out that this was lacking. This is performance based. In fact, Jesus goes on to point out later through his ministry that everybody is lacking, which is exactly why he needed to come. The Apostle Paul later summarizes this in Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need to be justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What Jesus shows in this is that even if you think you are righteous and that you've crossed all your T's, dotted all your I's, paid minute attention to the details of the law, there will always be ways in which you fall short of God's perfection. And to rest and to trust in what you do to get you right before God is not enough. Our catechism builds on this. Describing in Lord's Day 3 how apart from Christ, even despite our best efforts, we daily increase our debt before God. And in Lord's Day Day 2, we cannot keep all the laws of God perfectly. Perfectly loving God and our neighbors, but our fallen condition inclines us to be in opposition towards both God and our neighbor. Now, knowing this, what Jesus said about our righteousness. You can see the problem. If you build your relationship with God on performance, your joy will be sucked dry because it's always going to be a losing battle. Outwardly, we can look clean. Outwardly, we can even have someone like a Pharisee come up to us and say, from my perspective concerning the righteousness that comes from the law you're blameless and we can begin to build up our whole sense of self worth around looking clean and proper and righteous or at least not as bad as the next guy over but this makes us artificial plastic Christians when we build our identity around that that which is not real at all Because it's not a real righteousness, not one which can stand before God. Because inwardly for all of us, in ourselves we find our hearts are still so often inclined to sin. Why is this? Because if we're talking about heritage at all, like the Apostle Paul brought up here in verse 5 then it's good to remember that there's all the more reason to have no confidence in our heritage because there is one common heritage one heritage that we do share in common the heritage of humanity's fall into sin in the garden of Eden. And that heritage has corrupted who we are to such an extent that all that we do still bears traces of sin in it. There is no reason for confidence in a righteousness that Isaiah the prophet describes as being, at best, apart from Christ, filthy rags, tainted with sin, shot through with sin in comparison with the pure and holy righteousness that God himself requires of his people. But here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't just require this righteousness of his people. Our Belgic Confession describes the new mindset that we need in this way in Article 16. We believe that when he saw that man had plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, our gracious God in his marvelous wisdom and goodness, set out to seek man when he trembling fled before him. He comforted him with the promise that he would give him a son born of woman to crush the head of the serpent and to make man blessed. Where Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God set out to seek man as he trembling fled from him. Where Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, Jesus later stood firm in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where our old past once defined us and gave us a broken future of sin shot through and through. In the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus became our righteousness. They're one who redeemed us in the past from our past and who gives us a glorious future. And God looks at us through his righteousness, a righteousness that's given to us on the basis of that love. This is why we need to look at what God gives us on the basis of a relationship that is built on love, not one that's built on performance. Remember the parable of Jesus in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee spoke so proudly of his righteousness and his prayer on the temple, while the tax collector himself couldn't even look up to heaven. Rather, the tax collector beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This humble man, Jesus said, went home justified before God, justified, declared righteous before God. If we are to find the joy of verse 1 in our passage, the joy of the Christian life, we must leave behind this idea of God's love being based on our performance. The great Reformation theologian Martin Luther said this, The fatuous idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore first take the sledgehammer of the law in his fists And smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came. Not to break the bruised reed, nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives we need to lay aside that righteousness that is looking to our own performance by realizing how ineffective it is, by allowing the law to break it down, and then by seeking that righteousness in Christ. The tax collector found in the temple the righteousness of God It broke him down in fear and trembling, leading him to beat his chest and to weep in repentance at his miserable state. And then it lifted him up to the heights of joy again as it moved from being his perfect standard that he held over the tax collector to being the gift that he gives to his repentant people. This is the prize that you find as you follow the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what a comfort this becomes for those who have found themselves trapped in grievous sin. What a comfort this is for those who followed the lure of sin and feel like they could never get back to a right relationship with God. They are too far gone from Him. Because it means that they... Yes, even they, even you, can find redemption. Because he is the one that not only holds it as a standard over you, but also gives it to you. And if you come to him recognizing your sin and hating it and humbling yourself before him, asking him to forgive you, not because you deserve it, but for the sake of Jesus' finished work, he will give this forgiveness of sin. A hurting background, a background of shame, it doesn't define you. It doesn't bar you. It also impacts how we look at other people. If you cling to your past and to others, other people's pasts and you use that to define them and judge them, you're clinging to what is and will be left behind. If you cling to putting on a good face yourself. In front of everyone at every cost, being as clean as possible in the sight of those who are around you, building your identity around that, you're clinging to what will be left behind. Don't be left behind. Rather lean forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, confessing your sins and taking hold of a righteousness not your own, a righteousness that is freely given. when we move our confidence away from our own righteousness and our desperation to put up a clean slate in the good front in front of other people and in front of God, then that frees us. And we can begin to joyfully tell people about where we came from and how far Christ has brought us in his grace. This is the grace and mercy of Jesus highlighted and God himself is glorified. This is what happens when we take our eyes off our own righteousness and fix it on Christ. And now we will look at our zeal. In verse 6, we see that the last thing that the Apostle Paul leaves behind as he presses on towards the upward call of Jesus Christ is this. his His history of letting himself be led by his zeal, his passion for what was right and in obedience to God. And seeing that as his point of pride, being proud of the fact that he himself was so excited and so passionate. If you've read the book of Acts, you may know of Paul's history before his conversion when he still had the name Saul. He was a man who was fiercely zealous for the name of God. He stood by approving the stoning of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. And Acts 8 verse 3 says that Saul made havoc of the church entering into every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Chapter 9 talks about how he was breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. Saul saw himself as a modern day Phinehas, a young man with zeal that was so on fire that it was open to the point of killing all those who stood against God. Or so he thought. What he didn't realize was that his very zeal was damaging the church. His very zeal was harming the people of God. This shines a light on the problem of putting his confidence in his zeal, doesn't it? It shines a light on the problem of us putting our confidence in in our zeal as well. In our fallen condition, we can fall into a pattern of putting on our confidence in our zeal. We can have it that there are days in which we feel lifted up in our walk before God and we feel excited and we feel passionate and we hold that as our measure. We find our confidence in that. There can be days when we are excited about our devotional life, when we feel very close to God. There can be days when we feel like our standards are high and we are excited to be obedient to God according to our own high standards. But our emotions can carry us up and down, can't they? Our own passion can go up and down. Our passion can be misplaced. Our zeal can be imperfect. There are so many ways in which it can fall short. Our form for the Lord's Supper highlights it with these words. We are also aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We do not have perfect faith. And we do not serve God with such zeal as he requires. Daily we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and the evil desires of our flesh. This shows us the foolishness of putting our trust and our confidence in our own zeal as if based on how excited we are about things and how much we are willing to do in service of them is what is going to carry us on towards salvation. So what do we do? In verses 7 to 11, the Apostle Paul shows us what we need to hold before us. Not our own zeal. Not the own lengths that we will be willing to go for God. But in verses 7 to 11, it holds before us Jesus Christ's zeal. And the lengths that he was willing to go for us. That zeal led him through suffering, through death, through resurrection, through our redemption leading to eternity. Just as with the other two, heritage and our righteousness, we are to take our eyes off of ourselves and look again to our Savior, the Apostle Paul teaches us, to seek him, to follow him, leaning on his work and his righteousness alone. We are to take our eyes off of that, off of our performance, and rest on his love. Now, that's great, you might think, but I still have a hard time with that. I still put my own performance on the pedestal time and time again. Can we do all this perfectly? Are we there yet? Again, not on this side of eternity, not even the Apostle Paul. I do not count myself to have apprehended, to have seized, to have laid hold of, to make it one own, to win, to attain, to have all of this in full. It's not mine in fullness yet. And yet he rests secure in this, that he belongs to Christ. I press on in this. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. To repeat again from last Sunday, the ESV describes it in this way, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. If your faith is in Jesus, all that you strive towards is already yours in Christ. That zeal that he shows towards you Verses 7 to 11. The righteousness that he has obtained for you through his actions of verses 7 to 11. The new heritage that he gives you, an eternal inheritance. All of that is already yours in Christ. I don't have it myself yet. But Christ has already made me his own and Christ has it for me and he continually calls me upwards and I will follow his call in his strength and he will make me complete in his day. So in the midst of his work, he calls me to lay aside my fallen inclinations again and again and again, as many times as is necessary and more yet. Those inclinations which lead me to build my own identity around my heritage, whom I am, the way that I fit in here, the inclinations that lead me to build my identity around my righteousness, how good others perceive me to be and how good God perceives me to be and those inclinations which build my identity around my zeal, how excited I am in the faith one day to the next. To do so is foolish and fruitless if we are to hold on to it. Foolish and as fruitless as you might say, building our identity around a Snapchat score or Facebook likes. He calls us to lay all of this because it makes no measure in our standing before him this is part of what is left behind and he calls me upwards in Christ Jesus he calls me to press on towards the goal of sanctification and holiness in him as those who already belong to him this is the joy that is found in the Lord in verse 1 This is the joy that's found as we leave all of that behind. As we move from a relationship based on performance to a relationship based in His love. So let us confess, in Christ, I have a new heritage. Not in the Garden of Eden, but redemption in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. In Christ... I have a new righteousness, not one of filthy rags, but the pure white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of a divine and eternal standard. In Christ, I have a new zeal, not my own, not one which goes up and down with my emotions, not one which leads to the persecution and harm of my fellow Christ followers, but I have Christ's zeal for me, a zeal that will never fail. So, loved ones, let your security in His love motivate you to press on in love to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. Yes, there are ways and there will be ways in which we fall short, it's true, but we rest in God who provides protection. He has brought us by his grace and brings us increasing joy as he takes our eyes off of ourselves and fixes them on him. Because of that, press on. Amen.